0: I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, data, data! I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. Hello, and welcome to another cheeky scientist radio show. I'm your host Isaiah Henkel, and today we're talking about business concepts that most PhDs don't understand, and maybe topically. Uh, we understand them when we are graduate students or postdocs in our academic journey, um, but we don't, we're not able to talk about them intelligently uh, because we don't understand uh, the different components. We don't understand uh, the framework that a lot of these concepts uh, sit in. So what I wanted to go through today are, are really 11 of these key concepts that will help you understand uh, business in terms of uh, the context of business. Uh, how to start navigating these different, different business ideas uh, so you can develop your business acumen, your ability to make business decisions. Now, one of the frameworks I want to start with that will uh, I think give you, is a good place to start for all of you, it's where I started uh, in my, my journey crossing over from academia to industry, is to look around uh, you the next time that you're working in a lab or in a classroom. There's going to be uh, materials that you use. There's going to be products that a company makes that you're using on a daily basis in your current work. Uh, for example, wh- when I uh, started realizing I wanted to get into industry, I looked around my lab and I saw, okay, there's a, a kaigen kit. There's uh, these large instruments that I'm using that are made by Beckman Coulter. So I started looking at the brands and the company names. And I think this is a a useful exercise for any of you. And then I went over to my computer and I used uh, my FlowJo software program for my flow cytometry experiments. Uh, Those three companies hire people like me. And it made sense to me, uh, well, looking back on it, (laughs) it would have made sense if I would have thought about it at the time, that they would prefer to hire me, someone who has used their products over someone who hasn't. Because I had product knowledge at that point knowledge of their products. Product knowledge, it's a it's a concept. It is a transferable skill that's very valuable. And many of you, most of you will have product knowledge of of a product that a company makes, a company you would likely want to work for. This, again, could be software programs, reagents, instruments, uh, teaching materials. So no matter what your PhD background is, what you're doing on a, on a daily basis, you're going to be surrounded by these products. So you're sitting, maybe you right now you're sitting on a chair or in a car uh, that's created by somebody, somebody who would rather hire a person who has used their products over someone who has not. Uh, likewise, uh, a company would rather hire somebody who's used their product as well as competitors' products. All right. So for example, I, I used to use different antibodies in the lab in graduate school. Uh, for the flow cytometry experiments that I would do. Sometimes I would use antibodies from BD Biosciences, and sometimes I would use antibodies from, let's say, Thermo Fisher. Uh, That gave me market knowledge. So if I wanted to go work for BD or Thermo Fisher, uh, they'd be more likely to hire me because I had used lots of competitors' products, or their main competitors' products, uh, than somebody who had only used their product. That's market knowledge. Another key transferable skill, another important concept. Uh, finally, and I'm just talking about this overall framework here, this initial framework to get you started so that you have some confidence. So you know that, oh, okay, this isn't that complex, but I have to think about things differently. Finally, the decision that I made in graduate school on when to use the BD Biosciences antibody versus the Thermo Fisher, which experiments to use which for, that decision, that's acumen, that's business acumen or commercial acumen. Something you should be communicating on your resume, your LinkedIn profile, networking interviews, something uh, that you should understand that gives you a place to start in terms of developing your understanding of industry. And that phrase right there, understanding of industry is crucial. I'm going to tell you about a Dow chemical uh, study that was done showing that that's the number one uh, deficiency that PhDs, postdocs, people coming out of academia have uh, when they're looking to hire people when people in industry are looking to hire, if they're looking at you, they want to evaluate how big that gap is for you. How much do you lack an understanding of industry? And we're going to come to that. There's other reasons for you to start learning to speak the language of industry, start understanding key business concepts like the ones we're going to go through. And it's because for the industries you want to get into, if you don't understand business concepts, you're very likely going to get into junior roles. We've seen this We have thousands of people in our Cheeky Scientist Association and our advanced programs, and the ones who get into senior-level roles or principal-level roles are the ones that can display their transferable skills and their business acumen, their understanding of business concepts better than those who can't. Um, Those who can't or who refuse to uh, learn this and who just focus on these niche technical skills in academia end up in junior roles, often working side by side or beneath people with their bachelors or masters. There's a a great uh, study and figure out from Rasmussen College. Uh, It's in one of their industry management reports that shows, in particular, for biotech, pharma, and medical jobs, healthcare jobs, project and development jobs, R&D jobs, uh, that it can take five to eight years to get into a management position, if you start in a junior or non management position in industry, that is too long. You, because of your PhD, because of your training, should be transitioning into a higher level job. You should be doing everything you can to get the highest level title and salary possible so that you are managing people with their bachelor's or master's. You're, you're managing the technicians in a lab, for example. You're managing the robotics. You're being used for what you have that's the most valuable your mind. You, you can't think of uh, your industry career as starting with you know uh, a pipette in your hand. You can't think of getting into industry and, and doing something that somebody without your level of training can do. You've trained your mind exceptionally well as a PhD. The, the rigor that you've gone through, you can analyze information and data better than anyone, you can collect it and clean it to right, wrangle it, how, whatever buzzword you want to use for the ability to do research and to evaluate credible information within that, or the credi- most credible data, the, to look at sample sizes, outliers, etc. Even if you only deal in information and not data, because let's say you're a humanities PhD, for example, or social sciences, uh, it doesn't matter if you have that background or life sciences, engineering, physical sciences. Either way, you have these key skill sets, and you most importantly to get your PhD, you've had to innovate at the highest level. You've had to push a field forward. You've had to go beyond mastering a field, that's what you do for a master's degree, to pushing it forward. Okay, you deserve to be in a management level position. If you don't get in one, five to eight years. It's going to take you five to eight years to get into one. And the salary differs widely. You know, I remember being in graduate school thinking about getting an industry job and looking at salaries, and I would see some of these salaries for managers or executives that would start to get you know beyond $100,000 a year. And I was like, well, that's got to be some special situation. I could never get paid that much in industry. But I did, by the way. By my second year in industry, I was making over $100,000. How did I do that? Well, first of all, the, the worldwide average for all PhDs in industry is already over $91,000. Now, of course, there's some uh, countries uh, that where the salary is far lower. There's some where it's far higher. But that's the average overall, right? And of course, it's not taking into account maybe your first year versus your 10th year. But that is the average. So so you should know that you are worth that much. There's a place for you in industry where you can be paid that much. But again, you have to understand business. You have to have an understanding of industry. You got to be able to speak the language of industry, which is what this show is about. In terms of salary, this is from uh, data from Forbes and the National Science Foundation. Uh, your starting average salary in industry at the entry level, about 65000 For management level, 110000 Now, we've posted things on social media recently, and we consistently do this of people in our programs that get into jobs. And uh, I just posted one last week that I was very excited to see because it basically, uh, there was kind of three things that come up a lot for us. A lot of PhDs say, well, I can't get hired because of X, Y, Z. Um, And X, Y, and Z typically are, I don't have industry experience. uh, I need a visa and some other unique situation. My PhD background is very unique. And then on top of that, they say, well, because of all these things, I could never get into a job, let alone a job paying over $100,000. This person, their background was in forestry, like forest management. Okay. So again, they're thinking this is too niche. I could never get into industry. Certainly there's no $100,000 Hundred thousand dollar plus jobs, or whatever uh, uh, your currency is uh, at that at the current conversion rate. But they did. They got into a hundred thousand dollar job. They got their visa sponsored. This person didn't think they had any chance of getting a visa because they 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 thought the uh, first of all the to be able to work in the U.S. things have changed so dramatically. There's a uh, a lot of uncertainty right now. They thought there was no path forward for them let alone getting on an O1 visa because they didn't think they had enough impact they didn't think they had enough publications uh, but they worked with one of our uh, immigration lawyers that we partner with and they were able to get on the O1 they were able to get into a $100,000 plus job their first job in industry no industry experience and they were able to do that with a very niche background this is what all of you can do you can get into a management level job you have the training for it so again, starting salary, entry level sixty five thousand, management level one hundred and ten thousand. Seven years later, the same cohorts were looked at. Entry level eighty thousand, so it had gone up from sixty five thousand to eighty thousand, was a new average. Seventh year for management level two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, you might be thinking, are there even people that get paid that much? Yes overall compensation packages can add up very quickly when you talk about signing bonuses, annual salaries, cars, etc. Those executive packages can be immense. And I don't want you to see yourself as someone who can't have that or doesn't deserve it. And I want you to understand what's holding you back from that more than anything else is your lack of understanding of industry. Not your lack of industry experience, your lack of understanding of industry to be able to your your inability to currently talk the language of business, to understand business concepts, your lack of business acumen. So, the study that I've been talking about or that I talked about at the beginning of the show is from Dow Chemical. And it, there's a great figure looking at the identified curriculum gaps uh, for PhD students, postdocs, graduate programs overall. Number one on the list, as I've been uh, mentioning, understanding industry. Number one by far. Again what what is that that's your business acumen your business your knowledge of business concepts your ability to speak the language of industry. Number 2, business and finance training. If you don't know what COGS stands for, cost of goods sold by the way. There's a problem. If you don't know what a cash flow statement is or what cash flow even is, there's a problem. All of the technical information and data that you've learned in some way needs to be translated to business data and business information if you're going to be valuable to a company. You need to understand at a basic level finance. Beyond that, number three, project management. The way we get projects done in academia is typically referred to as the waterfall method. I think about designing an experiment or a lesson plan, et cetera. You, you go down, you, you plan it, you do the next step, the next step, the next step. It's called the waterfall methodology because you can't go up the waterfall. If you get stuck at a certain point or you get a negative piece of data, you have to go to the point of getting a negative piece of data, and then you have to go back to the beginning where you plan again. And this often can take months in the later stages of your PhD program, your postdoc, et cetera. Uh, there are better ways. There's different program, uh, there's different project management methodologies, and we'll discuss some of them. Number four on the list, communication skills. Number five, collaboration, especially with larger teams, not you know the three people in your lab or the four other TAs in your department. We'll go to to a couple of more uh, curriculum depths, so depth of understanding of industry, and then there are uh, a variety of other things that are much, much smaller in terms of uh, how many different companies uh, raise concerns about an understanding of safety and ethics, intellectual property, uh, adaptability, transferable skills is also on the list as a more general uh, term. So let's talk about accounting. This is something that you can learn about very easily. And a lot of it just has to do with understanding the nomenclature, being able to speak the language of business. For now, let's discuss three key terms, the balance sheet. This shows you the state of the company at a moment in time, using really three components, assets, liabilities, equity. Uh, These are three things that if any company is ever going to merge with another company, if they're going to be acquired by another company, they would share their assets, liabilities, and equity. Dig in and learn more about this. Sitting on earnings calls or listening to past earnings calls of public companies, most are available online. Listen to some of them. You will learn. You'll start to be able to speak the language of business better. Number two, the income statement shows the income of a company. So this is referring to the top line, how much revenue, how many sales that company has. That company needs to sell those products, whether it's an antibody, an instrument, uh, a software program. Going back to the examples I mentioned earlier. And it shows where it's making its money and where it's spending its money. Third, the cash flow statement. I remember hearing cash flow a lot as I started to transition into industry, but I never really understood what it was. It measures the actual money, the actual cash coming in and going out of a company. Now, at the end of a year, end of a month, end of a quarter, a company will release, uh, if it's a publicly traded company, they release their, their quarterly reports and it might show Uh, profits and losses overall, Uh, a company can be making large profits, but not have enough daily cash flow to survive. Uh, Every single day, a certain amount of cash has to come into the company so it can afford to pay for things. Uh, Where this tends to really matter is if a company has, and a lot of you might have experience with this, when you buy a new instrument or you buy reagents, etc., sometimes you'll get the reagents, you'll get the instrument before you've paid. Right? Maybe there's, you don't have to pay for 30 days, or maybe they don't have to deliver for 30 days, or 60 days, or 90 days. That gap can shut some businesses down. It can really affect some businesses because that gap is what will make the business uh, lose its cash flow because not it maybe has that on the books in terms of profits because it sold an instrument for 150 k but that cash hasn't actually come in. Now, we could dive extremely deeply into these topics. Uh, we could, you know, you can get a PhD into finance, but I want to introduce these to you so you can start reading about these, these words. It's just nomenclature. No matter what field you got into as a graduate student, a postdoc, maybe you changed disciplines, moving from uh, your after you got your PhD to when you did your postdoc or when you became an adjunct. Either way, you were able to teach yourself a new nomenclature, a new field. You have to do, do the same thing here. Number two. Project management. It's very, very different in industry. There's many different types of project management. If you think about project management, uh, the methodologies, there, there are a variety. I'll introduce some here. Uh, agile project management, a type of agile project management called Scrum. Uh, there's slightly more structured. That's that's one of the most dynamic and fast moving styles of project management. Very abundant in the tech industry. It's where a, they'll call it a sprint Occurs for one to four weeks. Uh, somebody that called the product owner will set a variety of deliverables up and say, "Okay, we're going to get this done in three weeks." And then everybody goes and works on it, and then they meet afterwards. There's there's more structure than I have time to go through here. They'll meet afterwards, and then they'll set up another sprint, and so it moves very very quickly in shorter bursts. Hence the name sprint. There's similar fast moving uh, project management methodologies that are a bit more structured, uh, lean. Kanban, or Kanban, and there's also much more stable and structured uh, methodologies. Uh, the waterfall being the main one, this is what we use in academia, it is the most stable, the most structured, where you go through a long-term planning, think about planning a very complex experiment, and then you start executing the experiment, and you can't go back to the beginning until you either get, get that data, negative or positive. Uh, you you find out something that helps you with your hypothesis, and you go back to the start. This is why getting enough data for a paper in academia can take so long. It's also why a PhD, last name Sutherland, invented agile project management. Uh, so look into agile project management and the PhD who invented it. Other types of project management methodologies, uh, PMBOK, PRINCE2, there's many different types. Think about it in terms of how dynamic the methodology is versus how structured. Those are on opposing ends of the spectrum. And then finally, how stable it is and how fast. This is important because you will want to ask an employer what style they use. There's also combinations. There's agile, waterfall, or I think it's called agile fall as well because some larger companies, they can't quite move as fast or change everything to agile. So they'll use a combination of the waterfall methodology and agile. You just need to understand these terms. You need to understand that project management is an entire field. It's why there are job titles uh, like project manager or senior project manager. Many of you can get into these project management roles, but if you're like me, when you're in graduate school or, or if you're doing a postdoc, you may not even know that such structured systems of project management exist. Unique selling proposition. I like to bring this up because. You should not only develop a unique selling proposition for yourself when you're looking for a job, you also need to understand that every product, every treatment, everything that's introduced in the marketplace, in business, needs to have a unique selling proposition. So think about it as a kind of Venn diagram. One circle is what the company needs, and this is a unique selling proposition in terms of you selling yourself for a management level position. Uh, so one circle is what the company needs, another circle is what you do well, and then the third circle is what other job candidates do well. Now, unlike most of the Venn diagrams you may l- maybe look at, you think the center's the best. The center of these three circles is a risky zone here. You don't want to talk about things that you do that the company needs that others also do well. So newsflash, maybe you don't haven't realized this yet, Your technical skills, that's risky. If you only focus on your technical skills when you try to get hired, you're in this risky zone because most other PhDs with your background, the same PhDs they're interviewing, also either have those technical skills or can learn them on the job very easily. So you have to differentiate yourself. You want to try to stay within the zone, the overlap between the two circles. One, what the company needs and what you do well. That's not overlapping with what other candidates do well. And I can tell you right now, no matter how many PhDs are listening to this show, most PhDs, when they first start looking for a job, will still only focus on their technical skills, not any business skills, not any transferable skills, not their understanding of industry. So if you can talk about those latter three items, you will differentiate yourself from other candidates. Now, the same is true for putting any product into a marketplace. Every company want, wants to find a unique selling proposition for that product or service or treatment. Why does this matter? Why do you need to understand this? Because every company that you're going to go work for, they are selling a product, even if that product is something, is a concept like sustainability, even if it's a nonprofit, they're still selling an ideology, okay? You have to understand that, which means they need to get attention on it, which means they have to be able to develop A unique selling proposition, they got to be able to differentiate whatever that product or treatment or drug or idea is from other products or treatments or drugs or ideas. It's the only way they can get attention on it, only, only way they can get it into the hands of people who need it. When you're looking for a job, the reason that the company's hiring for a specific role will be directly linked to the unique selling proposition of some product or service or treatment or drug that that company develops. So look into it, understand unique selling propositions, very, very important. Quantitative analysis. Now, there is a a specific job title in industry called a a quantitative analyst. Uh, This is an important business concept because a lot of us as PhDs, we don't realize that a job title can be as simple as researcher, right? Scientist one, engineer one. Uh, Analyst We think of an analyst as somebody who works in finance or accounting, but this word is making a comeback and is being used much more broadly. Uh, Quantitative analysis refers to the use of statistics to analyze relevant data. This is something that all PhDs can do. You can dig through information, whether that information is numbers or words. You can pull out the most important information, the most credible information, and you can draw conclusions from it. Sounds like the scientific method, just in very uh, general terms, uh, creating a hypothesis and proving it or disproving it. This is very important for you to understand that this is a key transferable skill. Sometimes in industry, you'll hear the word quant. That usually refers to the the job title quantitative analysts, the types of quantitative analysts that work at management consulting firms, for example, with an associate consultant uh, or somebody else that's working in the more management consulting peer role, uh, they'll rely on quants to crunch numbers. Uh, Sometimes the job title is data analyst and they'll work with the data scientists. You need to know that you should be looking for the higher level jobs by understanding these other roles. Ideally, these would be people that are working with you or for you, people that would be subordinate to you. So if you're a data scientist you might have a team of three or four data analysts. If you are a management consultant, uh, a medical science liaison, uh, you might have uh, quantitative analysts who are gonna help you crunch some numbers or people that are on the team, the larger team in the medical uh, affairs department or the regulatory affairs departments uh, and so on. It's important for you to know that the analyst role, the peer analyst role is a more junior role. You wanna get into the roles where you will have a team of analysts who can do the pure crunching of numbers. The the differentiator for you is that you're able to draw conclusions from those numbers that are crunched or from that information that is crunched. Do you see the difference? You have to be able to take the technical information, the the data, the the data that's been analyzed or the data that's been uh, cleaned or collected or wrangled, again, whatever buzzword you want to use, where you come in as a PhD with your PhD training is you're able to take that information, that data, and translate it. Translation is a huge part of industry into something, an action, a suggestion, a recommendation that will help the business in terms of the business data, profits, cash flow, revenue, cost of goods sold. So hopefully this is starting to come together more and more for you. The next concept I want to discuss is operations management. Operations management, it's the process of achieving the most efficient way of a given objective in business. Why am I bringing this up? Because you excel in operations management. Think systems, methodologies, protocols, lesson plans. Okay? Today, operations management is crucial. Quality control, quality insurance, supply chain management, commercialization, distribution, this is all in the news for good reason. It's a crucial part of getting things done in industry, and they need PhDs who can look at lots of different data sets, lots of different information from various sources, and making sure that they're improving productivity. Your regulatory acumen, your ability to document, right your documentation, that that transferable skill, extremely valuable in industry. Inspection and materials handling, equipment maintenance policies, all of this needs to Uh, be put in the form of a key performance indicator in industry, which is just a data point. And who do they look to to be able to analyze various types of key performance indicators, various data points, and be able to make decisions on how to improve productivity, which improves performance, improves profits, and so forth. They need PhDs for this. Mergers. So we discussed mergers, and I'm going to discuss acquisitions here too. So what's the difference between a merger and an acquisition? A merger is the consolidation or combination of one company with another. Think of it as it, as it occurring equally. So you take A and B. When it comes together, you have all of A and all of B. Ac- an acquisition, on the other hand, the purchase is, is the purchase of one company by another. So ownership transfers. So in this case, you're thinking of big A swallowing little B. Now, this is a spectrum, of course. It can look more like a merger or more like an acquisition. Uh, It can be friendly. It can be hostile if a company's publicly traded. We've all seen things in the movies where uh, uh, an external person who has a lot of money comes in and starts buying up all the shares of a company and wants to take over that company. Uh, There's a lot of different ways this can happen. What does it mean for you? You need to understand that there are mergers and acquisitions happening all day, every day for companies in every sector of industry. Again, it's happening all the time. It's very likely the reason that you are on an interview right now. If you're interviewing for a job, there's either an internal restructuring happening or there's a merger and acquisition. I used to think that mergers and acquisitions were extremely rare. I would hear about them when I was in graduate school. I think I heard about, uh, for example, you, know, you hear about in the news uh, when Facebook uh, acquired WhatsApp, as an example, or when it tried to acquire uh, Snapchat. You hear about these large billion-dollar mergers and acquisitions in the news, but you don't hear about the small ones. I remember when I uh, went to work for one of the first companies that I worked for in industry, and I got on board. I found out there was all kinds of mergers and acquisitions happening. Like the second day that I was on the job, they told me how they had just acquired a cell line. Right? They had paid maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars for it, maybe even ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for it. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's not a merger or an acquisition. It's a key business strategy. A company may not have the resources, or it might be more costly for a company to create a new sell line from scratch, or a new sell medium from scratch, or something else that they would need, or something else they would want to sell in the marketplace to diversify their portfolio, to increase their revenues, etc. And if they look at the numbers on paper, they might find out, Right? The finance department might say, it would actually be cheaper for us to buy this other company who's already producing this drug or this treatment, this, this product. That's why you see so many large pharmaceutical companies, instead of innovating, because innovation is expensive, they just buy the drug. They just buy the other product. And you need to understand that that's an option uh, in business, and in industry. So mergers, acquisitions. Organizational behavior. It's the scientific study. That's right. You can get a PhD in organizational behavior. The scientific study of how individuals interact with other individuals within an organization, as well as, this is the important part, as well as how they interact with the organization itself. Now, there's three different levels of organizational behavior, macro, meso, and micro. Okay, so at the macro level, how the organization from the top down supports the individual or supports the department. Okay, and then all the way down to micro. The micro is the individual, and you can also look at the department, which is in the middle. How the department, the, the collective interactions from a group, support the individual, and how the inter- individual interacts within that department, within that organization. My favorite story that really helped me understand how important organizational behavior is, how it's a strategy to improve productivity or or efficiency of a company, effectiveness, revenue, profits, etc., uh, was the story. Uh, of Pixar, and how they were struggling to open up the lines of communication between different departments. Right? They wanted the designers, for example, or the uh, uh, not the cartoonists, but in a sense the cartoonists that would develop uh, the, the designs for the movies. Uh, they wanted them to d- talk more with the engineers, to talk more with the IT department. Um, they weren't able to open up the lines of communication, no matter how many different things they tried, right? And a company might have lots of different tools for communication, uh, such as a chat box or email or phones, etc. cetera, but they thought about it in a different way. They got a really high priced, uh, I, I believe several high priced, uh, coffee machines. They put them in the center of the Pixar campus, They offered this high-level espresso to everybody for free. So what happened? Everybody from every department would come to the center of the campus every day to get their free espressos, and what did they do when they were there waiting in line for their espressos? They talked to each other. It opened up lines of communication uh, dramatically, and, and the rest is history with Pixar. Industry hierarchy. Now, most of us in academia are used to a very flat hierarchy. There's your PI, and then there's everybody else. There's the professor, and there's everybody else. But if you think about it, if you take a step back, you look at a department, you look at uh, different positions in academia, such as um, you know, the deans versus the department chairs versus the uh, professors versus the, uh, the tenure professors or the adjuncts, the contractors, the postdocs, the graduate students, you start to move from more of a flat uh, hierarchy to a taller hierarchy. Hierarchy is very important for many companies because it dictates the chain of communication. It it opens the chain of communication. It's it's basically a guideline for how you communicate to get things done so that people aren't talking to everybody and everybody's not making decisions. They don't understand which departments are cross functional or lateral. They don't understand which people are cross functional or lateral. Uh, They don't know who to go to when there's a problem. So having a hierarchy, it's not so much about chain of command anymore, it's about chain of communication. And there's many different types of hierarchy. It's not just about how tall or flat they are, right? How many middle levels uh, there are in the hierarchy. There are examples of very, very different hierarchies, uh, such as a matrix hierarchy, where you might have departments divided up by their role, right? Like let's say IT or the service department, the marketing department, the sales department, the R and D department. But you could also have them uh, divided up by certain divisions or certain product divisions, like the electronics division, the home goods division, the snacks division. Think of all the different categories. If you, for example, if you go to order something on Amazon Prime or go to Amazon, there's all these different categories. Those would be different divisions and they might intersect with different departments so every product division would have its own marketing department or would have its own IT department or would have its own R&D department so in one sense there would be multiple R&D departments there's the R&D department for the electronics division the R&D department for the home's good division the R&D department for the snacks division you might think it sounds complex but it's a great way to simplify complexity especially in companies that are massive. Think of Pfizer, for example. You might have hundreds of thousands of employees, right? And and this is not even counting sister companies or subsidiaries and so forth. So you have to understand how important this is. So important that during most companies' onboarding training, uh, you'll be given a company hierarchy. So you understand how the chain of communication works. Corporate culture. For those of you that think you understand culture and you think culture just has to do with you know, work-life balance, has to do with uh, how you dress at a company, uh, you have to go deeper. Culture is the entirety of how things get done at a company. You've experienced different cultures in academia just by going into a different department, a different classroom, a different lab. That difference of feel, things getting done differently People storing their, uh, their laboratory equipment differently, people leaving their coffee cups in different places outside their lab door, for example. All of that is a difference in culture. The cultural uh, paradigm includes processes, right? Uh, how things get done. Think about a company where everybody communicates with each other uh, through phone between offices versus a company that has big glass walls for everything, and they encourage people to go into each other's offices for complete transparency, and they want people talking in person, uh, that's part of a cultural paradigm. Uh, companies who use email to communicate versus uh, chat or Slack. Uh, the stories and symbols, one of the first companies I, I worked for in industry, all throughout the company's headquarters, they had big pictures of the original founders, two people who had started the company uh, in in, in their basement, literally, and then in a large, um, almost like airline, uh, empty old airline warehouse. Uh, and they had pictures of this warehouse all throughout the company. Those stories, the founder stories, the symbols, the branding, the colors, all of that is culture. The power structures, right, which department is in charge? Uh, one of the companies I worked at, it was always the R&D department and the marketing department battling with each other. They were the two departments that got the most funding. And this is often the case for a lot of uh, companies in STEM. Uh, And they would, in a a healthy way, have friction between each other because they'd be wanting to drive innovation, but at the same time, want to get attention on that innovation, but not too early, right? There might be proprietary things. So the marketing department would say, well, we got this new product coming out we need to start promoting it and the r&d department would say you know not yet we don't want to get the proprietary information out there until we're far enough along until we know we can hit this uh, deadline to get it to market control systems rituals routines a lot of the unspoken things have to do with culture as well right it might be on paper that people can come in and work whenever they want as long as they get their work done but if everybody's there by 8:30 and if the bosses give you a dirty look if you're there after 8.30, then the unspoken cultural uh, routine or ritual is people are there by 8.30. Last but not least, let's talk about corporate strategy. Uh, This is important because you need to align your one and five-year goals with the company's one and five-year goals in some way. Uh, Of course, you're going to have your own personal goals too, but if you're applying for a job, if you want to get hired, you have to think about corporate strategy, especially hand-in-hand with culture. The strategy is the what, the what the company wants to achieve. The culture is how they're going to achieve that. So the strategy defines the direction the company's management wants to take the company. First of all, please learn what that is before you apply to a job. Where does the company want to go? They're going to state it on their website. Now, of course, there could be deeper proprietary levels not stated on the website, but set up informational interviews, learn about what that company wants so most importantly, you learn if it's a good fit for you. And think about strategy in terms of what's called Porter's Five Forces. This is a famous uh, framework, a framework that we'll end on, um, that will help you understand what drives business, what might drive a company's strategy. Right? So the company, why, why would a company not just say anything? Why, what is the framework within they determine their corporate strategy? It's often Porter's Five Forces. So think of Porter's Five Forces as the things that will uh, help a company get to where it wants to go in a marketplace or prevent it. For example, there is the bargaining power of suppliers and the bargaining power of buyers. So let's say a particular company needs to distribute its products and buy a certain type of packaging that's very expensive. Okay? That company... Has bargaining power on one side or the other. The suppliers of that packaging, right? Let's say that that packaging, there's only one supplier for that type of packaging. That supplier is going to have a lot of bargaining power, a lot of leverage when it comes to negotiating uh, terms uh, with that company who needs its packaging. But if there's hundreds of suppliers of that type of packaging, guess what? Now the company who needs the packaging has more bargaining power. And there can be a lot of zeros involved here, right? I mean, think about an Apple, which, t- which has a very specific style of packaging, and it has to purchase that packaging and everything that goes into it to provide that user experience uh, that they want to give someone when they open the Apple package. There's also the threat of new entrants and the threats of substitute products or services. So think about a drug where the, the drug for the patent has worn off. Now there's going to be substitutes, right? When you go to a a pharmacy and you don't have to buy the name brand uh, ibuprofen like Advil, you can buy the much less expensive brand that has the exact same drug in it. That's a substitute. There also might be a new entrance, right? Think of Advil when uh, Aleve first came into the market. That's a new entrance that all of a sudden was claiming to be able to uh, prevent pain for a much longer period of time. That would cut into the sales of Advil in this case. And then on top of all this, you have a rivalry among existing competitors. Right? So Advil had already had a competitor, Tylenol, this entire time that it had to take into account. So this, these forces are fluid. They're constantly moving and happening. And they're very important for understanding, again, the rationale why a company is hiring for the position you're applying to. They're going to ask you questions. They're, not, they're very unlikely going to say, well, tell me about Porter's Five Forces. No, but they're going to ask you, do you know why we're hiring for this position? We want to get this product into these people's hands, but there's this substitute out there and these new entrants that are coming. What do you recommend? If you don't understand these forces or corporate strategy or culture, you're really not going to know how to answer that question. This takes us to the end of this Cheeky Scientist radio show. Remember, Your biggest, the biggest thing that you can do to differentiate yourself from competitors in the job market and to elevate your career into more higher and higher level management positions, to executive positions, and then finally into those C-suite positions has to do with your understanding of industry, your understanding of business concepts, your ability to take those concepts and to make intelligent decisions, to have business acumen, commercial acumen. And as a PhD, you can do this. You just have to think about this new information and this new data. You have to understand it, learn the nomenclature, practice it, get trained on it, and you will excel and you will get into, ideally, your first industry position at the management level. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely, You have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's PhDsgethired.com. phdsgethire Com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, Then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. phdsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power and your net work is your net worth.